Hey everybody, welcome to church. Uh, my name is Chris, the lead pastor here, and it is good to be with you on uh, this Sunday before, as Dave said, we begin the Advent season. Um, I'm going to read uh, from Matthew 25, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump in, say a little bit about Advent and Christ the King, like Dave mentioned, and then uh, really work to hear Jesus in what is a, a very challenging and provocative passage. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 25. I'm going to read, and then we're going to pray, and we're just going to jump, jump right in. Beginning in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. And then the king will say to those at his right hand, come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. And then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not give me clothing, sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. And then they will also answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask you to help us. God, help us to not shy away or run away, recoil from really complex and difficult things. God, as we gather here together in the hope that we would be formed as Christians as a worshiping community, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak to us. We pray that we would understand what you're saying. God, we pray that you would give us clarity to think about you, Jesus, and clarity to think about our own lives, where we're headed, what's happening in us. Father, I ask specifically that you would give us the ability to be truly here, present in this room, God. Many of us are recovering from holiday busyness and different things that might have been joyful or painful or somewhere in between. And we pray today that you would give us the grace that only you can give to allow us to share this time together as we sit under your word and think about your words to us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Before we get into Jesus's teaching about 
those who took care of him and those who did not. I want to say a few things about Advent and, and Christ the King. I'm, I'm like Dave. I did not grow up in uh, the Anglican tradition. And so for me, Advent was um, nothing more than like little cardboard doors on a, on a, on a calendar with little chocolates behind them, and, um, which was great. Uh, but I didn't know really what it was. And yet we say this all the time when we think about the beauty and the wisdom of the church year. One of the reasons why I, I really do love being in the Anglican tradition is that we're a part of this, um, this big old story with all these rhythms. And, and the church here is full of rhythms. Uh, Easter happens and Lent gets us ready for Easter. Christmas happens and Advent gets us ready uh, for Christmas. We say it all the time here, but it's striking to me that Christmas happens on the same day every year and yet it seems to sneak up on us. So one week out from the beginning of the season, we have an opportunity to decide now that we're going to prepare. Uh, the word Advent means coming. And during Advent, Christians have, have throughout the ages uh, remembered and anticipated two comings. One, we look back to Jesus in a manger and we we think about, like Dave said, the, the darkness, um, the, the season of darkness and uncertainty, and Jesus entered that darkness, and he came. And then we also look forward to the second coming of Jesus, and that's actually the emphasis of our passage today. It's that Jesus will return as king, that he will be who he is, and we will see him as he is. And I just love the fact that before we enter into a period of wilderness wandering in its own right, a kind of waiting and sitting in darkness, we actually have every year before Advent this Sunday, Christ the King, where we see Jesus clearly for who he is. It's like before you enter into the darkness, you have a clear picture of who Jesus is. He is our King. And Christ the King, I think, is really important for us because there are two things that we hear at the very beginning of this teaching moment with Jesus that, that, that are important to understand regarding his kingship. Number one, we're told he will return. And if you were with us last week, we looked at this parable where a, a landowner goes away on a long journey and he's gone so long, people begin to wonder like, oh, maybe he's never gonna come back. Um, and then they began to kind of behave in ways where their true character emerges and comes out we're told here that jesus will return one of the foundational beliefs of christianity is that jesus our king will return that he will be king in front of us that the king will come and i think that's actually really important because it tells us a couple of things number one it tells us that god doesn't abandon his projects he's not like us we have unfinished projects in our home and in our lives. God will return. He will complete that which he began. And as I think about my own life, I'm really thankful for that because it reminds me that God doesn't leave things half finished. And so if you are sitting in a space right now to where there seem to be lots of loose ends in your life, things that feel unfinished, things that feel unresolved, um, our king will return and he will bring resolution. And that leads me to the second thing that we see in this passage that we'll miss if we're not careful regarding Christ the king, which is that he will sit down. And for us, we think, well, okay, he sits. In the ancient world, for a king to sit is a king that says, I'm finished with my work. 
there's no more work to be done. He completes things. He finishes. His work in you will one day be finished. Fulfilled. He'll complete it. And as we live our lives in the in-between, in places where things feel far from finished, things feel far from resolved, far from good even sometimes, it's important for us to remember that our God will return as king and will sit down. But the thing that I think we don't love to think about around the seatedness is that there will come a time where there will be no more remediation no more repenting, where the outcome of our lives will be determined. And I'm thankful that that day is not today because I feel like the outcome of my life is far from finished. But a story like this, a teaching like this, foundational Christian belief is that one day cards will be called, that we will be who we will be and Jesus will be king and we'll stand in front of him. And I believe that one of the invitations in a teaching moment like this from Jesus is to begin to live today in light of the fact that we will stand before God one day, that there will be a final evaluation of our lives. Judgment is real. And I believe that in a world where we are intent on deconstructing power, it's tempting for us to think, well, who is God to say such things to me? I remember one of our little kids, at least one of them. And if you have children, uh, you've heard this before, some statement to the effect of, you are not the boss of me. Christ the King Sunday reminds us that he actually is the boss of us, that God can lay claim to our lives, that God one day will evaluate us. And that leads me to the second movement in the passage, which is the story Jesus tells, sheep and goats. Sheep in the Bible are generally viewed as valuable, goats less valuable. Sheep, therefore, uh, typically seen in terms of righteousness, goats, wickedness. Sheep are stubborn, but not as stubborn as goats. They're all stubborn. They share that in common. Not, neither sheep nor goats, neither of them are terribly intelligent. Uh, both are prone to groupthink. So when God calls you a sheep of his own, he's saying a few things about you and me. And they're not all great. They're not all bad, but they're not all great. As we contrast sheep and goats, this is important. Sheep more valuable, less stubborn, and sheep prefer open spaces at night. Whereas goats are less valuable, meaning not fluffy. They don't have that renewable resource to the degree that sheep do. They're more stubborn and they prefer to be inside the pen at night so as to keep warm. They have a hard time self-regulating. So in the Bible, as a result of their greater value and utility, it was common for farmers to possess far more sheep than goats. A shepherd would separate his sheep and goats at the end of the night. Oftentimes putting the sheep out in the field, unless there was a threat, they would be in the field. And then the goats would be in a pen so that they would huddle together and keep warm. And so the separating of sheep and goats was something that people listening to Jesus would have known happens every single day. 
And so when Jesus is telling a story about the end of days, he's using an analogy that everyone understood, which is that ultimately there is a separation because in the agrarian world in which Jesus lived, every single night there was a separation. So to summarize, Farming 101, sheep, fluffy, less stubborn, able to self-regulate. Goats, less fluffy, more stubborn, unable to self-regulate. On the surface, it could almost appear as if Jesus, after saying that, is essentially saying, so therefore go and do a bunch of good things in order to get to heaven. And it's true that Jesus is drawing a very clear distinction between sheep and goats. He then highlights certain acts of service. You cannot ignore that. You can't avoid it. It's just true. So does that mean that you should just sign up for the Lazarus Christmas dinner and be done with it? You should sign up for the Lazarus Christmas dinner. It's amazing. It's an opportunity for you to share a feast with our homeless friends in the city and not do something just for people, but with people where we remember Christmas and we eat a meal, we celebrate a feast. But that's not going to get you to heaven. And that's actually not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is more nuanced than that. And I think more powerful. He's trying to get us to see something big. Jesus, our King, on Christ the King, we remember this. Jesus, our King, has entered into the brokenness of the world. One of the things that we're going to be looking for as we walk through Advent and as we step into Christmas is the fact that rather than moving away from brokenness, God, through Jesus, moved toward brokenness. So the story Jesus tells about feeding and clothing and visiting is a story about Jesus. It's a story about the nature and character of who Jesus is. He, God, through Jesus, has met us in our hunger and thirst. He's moved toward our needs. He, Jesus, God, has covered our shame, our nakedness. And he has visited us in our bondage so as to bring freedom, even the places of bondage that are of our own making. So it's very important for us to recognize that when Jesus tells a story about your life and behavior, he's saying, I am this way. And if you would be with me, you will be this way. He's telling us about himself. And he's saying, as a Christian, and that word understood historically, Christian meant little Christ. It meant one who is like Christ, a little Christ. If you are like me, you will be like me. If you are with me, you will be like me. And you'll do the things that I did. So he's not telling us to get busy. He's telling us to look at him and to be with him and ultimately be like him. So we might say it this way. Jesus is the following. He is pursuant of the vulnerable. He is unafraid and unembarrassed to enter into darkness and shame around him. And he's able to engage bondage and bring comfort and freedom. That's who Jesus is. That's who our king is. And to be Christian is to see him for who he is and be with him and ultimately to be like him. And Advent is an opportunity for us to see him. It's an opportunity for us to learn how to wait, how to watch, how to pay attention, how to wake up. And so much in our world is designed to put us to sleep. It's designed to lull us into 
distract, distracted spaces to cause us to kind of have a little bit of like soul sleepiness. And some of us are in this room right now and you are feeling the effects of that soul sleepiness. It's the way of the world. To be Christian is to move toward Jesus and to see him for who he is and to be with him. And when we are with him, we inevitably become like him. We become as he is. We're influenced by him. And I just want to say, are you being actively influenced by Jesus? Ultimately, fundamentally, that's what this passage is about. It's, it's about being influenced by him. It's about being, um, being with him in a way that you see who he is and you begin to do and be as he is. So to what extent does Jesus actually influence your trajectory, your decisions, the way you spend your time, your energy, your money? And that leads me to the third thing I think that is important for us to think about. It's the, the question they ask, so when did we do these good things to you, Jesus? And I find it interesting that the folks who did the visiting and the feeding and the thirst quenching and the covering had no idea that they were doing something profound. They were just quite literally living outside themselves. And we've said this over and over and over again. Um, to, to not visit, to not engage, to not, not engage in the ways that Jesus says is to live within yourself. All of the actions that Jesus mentions are actions that pull us out, out of ourselves. They pull us out of self-preservation, out of scarcity, and they move us into a kind of other-based living. And it's telling, I think, instructive even, that Jesus tells a story about people who are like Jesus, who are living outwardly. They're extending a kind of costly or expensive hospitality. Because it's messy to move toward brokenness. It's messy to move toward hurt, shame. And yet Jesus does it and he invites us to be this way. And I find it so powerful that Jesus doesn't just say, when you live this way, as I live, I like it. He says, when you live this way, you are doing something for me, to me. We have a member of our church who is, um, she and her husband have been committed to fostering and they've just recently taken in a, a little fellow that they had a prior connection to and it's, it's a desperate situation. And yet God is involved in that situation because of his work, his life. And when we get outside of ourselves, Jesus loves it because it's that we're doing something in that moment, not just for another, but for him. Moving toward a difficult person in our family or our relationship settings, well, less heroic, is actually us doing something beautiful, not only to that person, to extend them hospitality and the gift of presence, even when it's hard, but we're doing something to Jesus in that moment. It seems from this story that Jesus is saying, when you engage those around you, as I engage those around you, you are not only engaging those people, you are engaging me, Jesus would say in a way that is mystical, a way that doesn't even fully make sense. And yet I feel this in my bones. It's like Jesus loves it when we come outside of ourselves. Jesus is moved when we move toward those around us 
in his name. And I believe that the thing that we're supposed to see here, one of the things that we're supposed to see, is that people like you and me are always becoming a certain kind of person. Either a person that's prone to self-protection and self-preservation or one that trusts enough to come outside ourselves. So this passage is not about creating a new checklist. It's about becoming like Jesus. It's about seeing him and being with him and ultimately being like him because our being like Jesus will always manifest in some quantifiable way. Your life matters. We're all becoming a kind of person and I believe this is an unavoidable truth I believe this is just one of the facts and the laws of the universe you and me we are always becoming and Christianity acknowledges that trajectories matter because trajectories end us up somewhere a trajectory puts you on a path and you end up in a pathway at the end of the path you end up in some form of destination and that there will be in our king an accounting so the last thing separating sheep from goats this is a very uncomfortable ending i'm going to read it again just so that we can feel the uncomfortability of it then he will answer them truly i tell you just as you did not do it to one of the least of these you did not do it to me and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. At the end of the day, Jesus uses a story like this to remind us all that according to his teaching and Christian teaching, there will be a day where there will be no more work to do. We will be ultimately who we will be. And what we have become will result in us being the kinds of people who either continue life with God or apart from God. And I just want to implore you to be willing to hear Jesus on this matter because I actually think this is very intuitive. It's not comfortable, but it's intuitive. If we move far away enough from him, we will ultimately be without him. And when Jesus makes a statement like this, there is no glee in that statement. I actually think one of the reasons why these kinds of passages are so hard for us is that some within Christendom would say things like that with a kind of like sadistic glee, like a kind of they're excited somehow that there would be those who would be apart from God. I don't hear that in Jesus at all. Here's what we have to remember about this story. This story that Jesus tells about the end of all days, a day that is coming but is not today, thanks be to God, because we all live long and winding lives. I am so thankful there's more work to be done in me and I'm sure in you. But Jesus says one day a day will come and in that story he says, and the king will gather all people to himself. So those who are near gathered, those who are far away summoned and brought and gathered. And what Jesus is saying is the enfolding of those who are near is a statement about what's already been true. Now, did we say sheep are perfect? Do we say sheep are not stubborn, not prone to groupthink, not prone to getting lost? No. We read in the Old Testament that God searches for us when we're lost, that we're not on our own. We're not talking about a state of location here. We're talking about a way of being with Jesus and like Jesus or not. 
Those who are nearby are gathered and those who are far away are gathered. And what's happening in this story and what I believe will happen at the end of all days is that which is fundamentally true will be named. Those who are with, it will be named. Those who are apart, it'll be named. And if you've ever found yourself lost, I believe that the wisdom of the text, if you found yourself disoriented, afraid, confused, the wisdom of what we read in the Old Testament is powerfully true for you. It means God is pursuing you. He's looking for you. In this story, we're talking about kinds of people. People who are just looking out for this or people who are following Jesus into living like this. And there's something so important for us to consider here. Because when Jesus tells stories like this, and this is true throughout the Bible, oftentimes there's a kind of dot, dot, dot at the end of the story. Remember the story of the parable of the prodigal son and the older brother is standing outside and he's mad and he's frustrated. There's a sense in which that story ends on a cliffhanger. Is he going to come in? He's being invited in. Or is he going to refuse to stay out, go in and stay out? I believe that in a story like this, as long as we're breathing air, there is an invitation to look at our lives and to recognize that Jesus wants to influence your life. He doesn't just want to help you win arguments or to think about things a certain way. He wants to influence our lives. So where is he inviting us to follow him? And we won't do it perfectly. But where is he inviting us to follow him? And ultimately be like him. Because I'm going to tell you, the more I follow him, the more open I am to looking outside myself. And the same will be true for you. I believe it's a universal fact that there are some who would even choose to say no to God and others who move toward him and say yes to him. And what Jesus is saying in this passage, I think, is something that we probably, in one way or another, feel in our bones, which is that the direction of your life, it really matters. So what I want to invite you to do over the next weeks is to consider the trajectory and the direction of your life. And to say, what does it look like for me to follow you? So that's the question I want us to hold before we come to communion. As you consider your life right now, where is Jesus inviting you to follow him? Where is he asking you to follow him, to be near him? And what would it look like for you to be like him? There's an invitation here for all of us. And what I want us to do is just to hold that invitation for a few moments in silence. And then we will come to this communion table together. But first, let's be still. If you have a phone, you can take a picture. I think this could be a great template for your journaling this week. What does it mean for me to follow him? And what would that look like in my life right now? Let's be still just for a few moments.